Welcome to Triple Take, the podcast where we talk to interesting people about the books, albums, and films that shape them. I'm Carla Jean Whitley. I'm John Hammondry. And I'm Matt Scalisi. And this week we're going to do something a little bit different. Today we do not have a guest in the room with us, but instead we're going to talk about a book, film, and album that are currently making news. The film is Suicide Squad, which is going to be really fun to hear the guys talk about because I had no idea what they were talking about when they first brought it up. Yeah, I'm the cool one in the group. Then the book is The Lynching by Lawrence Lemer, and we're going to talk about what happens when an artist does not release an album that we thought was coming. We're looking at you, Frank Ocean. So we're going to jump right into it. All right, so Matt, Suicide Squad has to be the most successful, terrible movie of all time. Oh, that's a bold claim. <laughs> I don't know that I'll go with you. I mean, there are four Transformers movies, right? Yeah, but none of them... Well, I guess they would have been breaking July and May records at yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah. But $134 million on the opening weekend for a movie that I think we can both agree was was garbage. I don't even know if I can call it a movie in good conscience. <laughs> Although I will say this, like, it wasn't as bad as some reviewers led me to believe that it was going to be, I think. Because I saw it last night, so we're recording this on Thursday, so I went and saw it by myself on a Wednesday night to make sure that I was prepared for this conversation. And I think I had it in my mind that it was going to be so, so bad that I was pleasantly surprised that it was just kind of terrible. Like, it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't the worst movie ever. It wasn't as bad as Batman versus Superman. I think that's kind of the like tragedy of it that I walk away from is that it's it's got a bunch of things that have the potential to be very cool. Yeah. And it's a cool premise and it's got some very good actors in it. And unfortunately none of those things were actually assembled with any kind of order uh, because they, they weren't trying to make a movie. They were trying to slap a product out onto the market as quickly as they could possibly get it out there. And that that's what we you know, that that's why it doesn't feel like it cares about the story or about developing the characters. And it's it's a shame. I think that's that's the feeling I walk away from is not this is sort of an offensively bad movie and everyone should have known it was going there. It it feels like it needed a lot more work put into it and it could have been something good. So give me the Cliff's Notes version here because it's possible that some of our listeners have no idea what y'all <laughs> okay, are talking yeah. about, just like me. So for those of you at home uh, who haven't heard of or seen Suicide Squad, basically the DC Warner Brothers uh, universe is trying to do what the Marvel universe has done over the course of, what, almost 10 years now? Right. In the span of two movies, three movies. Um, they had Man of Steel, the new Superman reboot, come out a couple of years ago. And then this spring, they had Batman versus Superman come out, which introduces not only Batman and Superman, but also shoehorns in The Flash, uh, Aquaman, Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman, yeah, and uh, Cyborg. And then this movie comes out, and it's uh, built purely around these villains that mostly come from the Batman universe teaming up together as part of this government super squad where they're being forced, despite the fact that they are bad guys... To be the good guys, they have to come in and save the day. They have they have tiny little bombs in their heads, and yes. and if they don't do what the government says, they'll blow up. Okay, so that does sound pretty dumb. 
Well, I, I mean, look, you're going into a comic book movie. You're going to expect some level of dumb. That's that's kind of the base level. Okay, but I saw the X-Men movies, and I saw the not as recent but recent Batman movies, and they were awesome. Yeah, they are awesome. That's, that's, yeah, that, that was going for a very different standard, I think. And, and, you know, those war movies, by the way, that were made, n- not necessarily the X-Men movies, the, the Batman movies from Christopher Nolan, those were made by one of the best filmmakers we have working today. These these are movies that were made by people who, you know, I, I think it's fair to say they're, they're lesser names, probably. David Ayer is the guy that directed and wrote Suicide Squad. He's kind of more of an up-and-coming name. But, you know, I, I think everything about this feels like... It's not that there was no skill, no talent involved. It's that it was all rushed. Yeah. It, it, was, it was put together very haphazardly and without a lot of care and that's that's the end result the thing that frustrates me the most is you get that like they keep referring to these great movies that have never happened yet like i would have loved to see the movie that explains you know like how harley quinn and the joker apparently from what i have read harley quinn and the joker killed robin and then batman punched the joker's teeth out and that's why the Joker has that terrible See, like, silver grill. And there's no way of knowing that, that yeah. because it's just happening off screen. So it's like they've created this universe that's interesting, but they didn't lay out the movies. And I think part of why that has happened is that the, for a long period of time, the Marvel Universe was being led by Joss Whedon, who kind of cut his teeth coming up with Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Firefly and all these serialized TV things. So he was better at building this kind of slow build, introduce lots of characters stuff. And then the Zack Snyder universe is just like, well, let's create this event. And Zack Snyder's the director of uh, Batman versus Superman, will be the director of the Justice League. Right. The director of Man of Steel, also the director of 300. So he's like really good at these visual comic book things, but isn't they, they didn't put in the due diligence to like create this cast of characters that we actually like. We hadn't seen any of these villains in movies before, so we hadn't seen them really as villains. I think that's kind of, this is a larger trend throughout Hollywood right now, is it's not enough to make one movie. You have to you have to make it a part of a mega franchise. And even the old franchises we used to get, like Pirates of the Caribbean, were, okay, we all know going in, there's going to be three movies at least from this. That's not even big enough anymore. The the movie studios can't waste their time on something like that. They have to make a franchise that ties in several franchises together. Uh, and we're seeing Universal is working on things like this and Paramount's working on things like this. Everybody wants to make their mega super franchise of several properties all tied together because it's a it's it's playing with bigger numbers. It's how you make billions instead of millions. But, you know, really so far there's only a few examples of that working extremely well, and I think the reason most of these people are even trying to do something like this is because of what Disney has been able to do with Marvel and the movies they made using the Marvel brand. What we're seeing from some of the other studios, in particular Warner Brothers with what they're doing here with DC, they're they're trying to microwave that. They're yeah. trying to get to where Marvel has built their way up to over a decade. They're trying to get there right now. They don't have time to wait. They want, they want easy wins. And look, they made. They're going to end up making some pretty good money off of Suicide Squad. Um, but my my real question going forward with these movies is, 
at some point, the, the, the returns are going to be diminishing. People are excited about this because it's new. Are they going to be excited about a sequel that you try to make to this movie? Um, you know, and I think that's where Marvel has had incredible staying power. They've had this franchise now going for so long. Is DC going to be able to keep something like this going when they're making movies people make? They might go see when it comes out, but I don't know that they really like it. Yeah, and we'll see if Marvel can keep it up. Uh, <laughs> Doctor Strange with Benedict Cumberbatch doing his weird, like, Doctor House American accent. That could be the one that they stumble on. I mean, it looks like it should be a Christopher Nolan movie. Uh, but yeah, that director's very, very good. By the way, though, don't don't sleep on uh, Scott Derrickson. No, I think I think it could be great. Uh, the the thing that mostly upsets me about Suicide Squad is how successful it was compared to how unsuccessful Ghostbusters has been. And Ghostbusters was actually a really good reboot, and it's a shame that nobody went to see it, and they're not going to make a sequel. But uh, quick takeaway: Would you recommend that people go see Suicide Squad? Uh, I would not, unless you are a a hardcore fan of this genre and you just feel like you need to be able to see it so that you can have a valid opinion on it uh, unless you're one of those sick individuals like myself i would not waste my time it's ju- it's just not very entertaining but now for something that is very entertaining let's jump into a surprisingly more uplifting conversation about the lynching It was kind of fun uh, talking about which book we wanted to talk about. I'm going to see intentionally now how many times I can say talk in one sentence. Because we both went right for some kind of like dark, serious, and long stuff. Yeah. And this one has an Alabama tie, which I guess made it jump out to us. Uh, we were talking I'm about sorry, white do trash. you not think a book called White Trash has an Alabama tie? Well, I'm yeah. sure it we could find has one. An Alabama tie. But... Uh, this one specifically takes place in Mobile, Tuscaloosa, and Montgomery, and mm-hmm. I learned so much about state history that I just didn't know anything about. I knew, like, offhand that this that one of the last lynchings in the United States had happened in Mobile in 1981. I had no idea how that related to bringing down the United Clans of America, and I had no idea how deeply enmeshed George Wallace was with the Klan, uh, yeah. And the role that that had during the desegregation of the University of Alabama. It's just like so much was tied together in this book in well, a way that was unexpected. And uh, the founding of the Southern Poverty Law Center is wrapped up in there, too. Yeah. Morris Dees has showed up in a couple of books that I've picked up lately, which is sort of a strange but interesting to me theme. And like you said, it's very deep into our state's history and that it was also especially interesting to me because I was born in 1981 Mm, and so I'm like this is happening in the months prior to my existence yeah and while that is you know not necessarily significant to anybody else's experience because we are a generation younger you know we didn't grow up in the civil rights movement that was long before we were around but, of course, the repercussions of that and of racism as a whole are ongoing. And so seeing it that tied in so closely um, kind of hit home for me in a different way. Yeah, and I mean, you look at, like, the rhetoric that George Wallace was using at the time. So, I mean, the way the book kind of frames it is it, it is well known that George Wallace, the first time that he ran for governor, 
was not the militant, outspoken racist that he would become. He was uh, more of a populist, um, left-leaning, hate the rich, praise the poor uh, Democrat. And he was defeated by Patterson, and he sort of famously said in a, uh, I, I will edit the version, but he famously said, you know, I'll never be out segregated again. And he became this just violent, racist uh, demagogue. And it was interesting because initially in his race against Patterson, he attacked Patterson for being in the pocket of the Klan and for the Klan at the time was like this real viable political force that would do this get out the vote stuff. And then the next go around, he goes out and reaches out to Robert Shelton, who became the imperial wizard of the Klan and he was based in Tuscaloosa. And he got Shelton on board as basically like this strategic get out the vote arm. And it was interesting just seeing these two charismatic white trash, uh, to refer back to the other book, white trash men coming out and just elevating themselves, whereas one is leading this sort of dark group and the other is actually leading the state, but they were very reliant on each other for a while. And you can kind of see some of that rhetoric of attacking minorities Mm -hmm. uh, through Judge Roy Moore and through Donald Trump and just, you know, even just this week with Donald Trump slightly hinting at the assassination of Hillary Clinton, like this violent language. And, you know, you have to wonder... Are we going to start seeing similar violence to what we saw in in the 1980s? Oh, I hope not. And I did want to talk briefly, too, about just the actual writing of the book. Because all the stuff we're talking about is really serious, really heavy. And yet the book itself is so compelling. The story is told in a narrative format. We're not just getting a history lesson here, but we're getting a story. And it really pulls you through the book, despite being... A very serious subject matter despite being several hundred pages long I think that you and I have both blown through it pretty quickly yeah he, he hooks you from the very beginning um, he opens with a segment about the uh, you know about the clan process and you know it, it, it's almost like eight-year-olds making up these words for their secret club because everything starts with a K at the Clan, the convocation and the claylif and it's just the clavern, it, the clavern, and it seems kind of silly, but then like quickly it becomes very violent, and it's also just interesting because you see sides of these historical figures from Alabama, like Morris Dees, um, mm-hmm. he he actually campaigned hard for George mm-hmm. Wallace in his first election, and he even defended a Klansman long before he founded the Southern Poverty right. Law Center, and, and so that transition is just fascinating a big portion of the book focuses on that and wallace's rise to power and seeing how people can change and then we're both alabama grads and i've always just been kind of obsessed with and fascinated by the stand in the schoolhouse door because i've always I, i did an interview with david matthews this week where he talked about it as this scripted event and then actually going through and reading um this book about it you see George Wallace often the background, you know, negotiating with the head of the Klan in order for them to not show up and violently disrupt uh, the desegregation. It's it's an essential part of Alabama history that everybody should read, in my opinion. Absolutely. Yes. So your take on the book then? Yeah. Thumbs up? Two thumbs up. Very good. I've enjoyed it very much.
So we were going to talk about uh, the most buzzed about album of the last few weeks, Boys Don't Cry by Frank Ocean, which was supposed to come out last Friday, uh, August 5th. But of course, it did not come out last Friday, August 5th. And as of the recording of this podcast on August 11th, it has still not come out. And it has been buzzed about for the last two or three years. And every time that he says it's going to be released, it doesn't come out. And so instead, we're going to talk about what obligations do artists have to their fans when they say, I have an album coming out soon. In fact, he even said, it'll be dropping on Friday. And he's done this. Uh, Kanye West has done this. Uh, In the past, the Beach Boys did this with their album, Smile, that they never released until Brian Wilson later released, like the Smile Sessions later on. Green Day has done this. Guns N' Roses had a long rumored one, yeah. Uh, I think Springsteen was going to do an electric version of Nebraska mm-hmm. that he didn't release. And so you've got these artists that just come up with, like, you, you know, they tease the fans. And if it comes out and it's great, then, you know, it's almost worth the wait. But if it comes out and it's terrible, then you know why they were embarrassed and they didn't want to release it. But Well, and it's interesting you know, you mentioned some artists who have a much longer, deeper history, but this phenomenon of saying it's going to come out on this day and then it doesn't is also a decidedly modern thing because you don't require the process that and the support and the distribution that you once did. And so, you know, the Beach Boys talking about Smile, I assume that they did not say it's going to come out on August 5th. No, right. And then it just didn't come out because you would have to have all those channels in place. And so, I don't know, it's kind of a... Um, Another example of how technology is a bit of a double-edged sword. It's moved the the leverage to, more towards the artist mm-hmm. because now they there's you know I, I mean I'm sure books have been like this for for you know the publishing industry's been this way for a much longer time that I'm, you you probably have pressure coming from the publisher but for the most part the book's done when it's done and they probably mm-hmm. had plenty of times mm-hmm. where things were delivered way after schedule movies you know and tv i guess still still very much work that way where yeah. the the you know it, it's it's the person paying for it is the, is the person who's going to make the well, decision about when it comes out but it's it's not so much an artist's medium really as as things like music and books are right actually i think i had to get extensions for both of my books yeah and then what Kanye did with The Life of Pablo was interesting because he released it, but then he started editing it and releasing updated versions. After the, it was out. After yeah. it was out. And then and then he promised, like, it's only going to be a title exclusive. And then, of course, weeks later it comes out on iTunes. And so, you know, he clearly made a lot of promises that he broke, but I think most of his fans, myself included, <laughs> forgive him because it's fascinating to watch like him break through this process and see him editing the album in real time. Well, and you would also never forgive Kanye for anything. That would be out of character That for would you. be very out of character. Uh, and then, uh, then you've also got the artists who drop the surprise albums, which are like just an unexpected treat, like Beyonce. Well, and okay, so the two albums Beyonce has released that way are the two Beyonce albums that I own, I mm-hmm. believe. Um, and Lemonade, that actually happened after I had become a Beyonce fan beyond the like, oh, hey, I recognize that song. That's kind of cool. But Big Fat did not care. Yeah. When it And that this, you know, we were joking earlier about how this is the part where, of the conversation where I reveal myself as a Luddite. But, <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, 
There was an HBO special tonight that was Beyonce. That's neat. I think I might have to watch that later. Oh, it was only available for today? Well, that's too bad because I have HBO now, so I can still get it. Yeah. Yeah, I remember recording it because I was watching something else that night. And I think we all knew going into it that she's going to release this like mm-hmm. video special. But we didn't know it was going to be an album. And we definitely didn't know it was going to be like the Jay-Z Infidelity album. Mm-hmm. And so this was just kind of came out of nowhere. And I think that's part of why you said those were the two albums that you own. Right. Part of the hype around them is that they just burst on the scene, not even just as albums, but as visual albums which is really cool um but in both cases i waited until they were available on cd because i still buy cds and so actually i think i misspoke when i said i could get the visual album on hbo now i think that they took it off pretty quickly but i got yeah it may only be on title now but I bought, you know, you the physical copy. Yeah. And so I sat down and spent time with it that way. And it actually worked out well for me that Beyonce delayed her Nashville concert because it was supposed to be before the physical CD was available. Oh, so, so now be, you have it and now you can go. Yes, the concert was supposed to be the day before the CD came out. Do you buy CDs for every album that you listen to? Every album that I own, yeah. Really? You don't do that digital versions for any of them or anything like that? Not really. I did the other day for Play by Moby. Thanks, Elizabeth Huey, for that inspiration. Because it wasn't, I was looking for it, and it was like all third-party sellers. So I was like, well, I might as well just get the digital version in this case. I think the last hard copy of an album I bought was actually my first Kanye album. I think it was the college dropout. What so year that, was that? <laughs> that was, I, I bought it after it, a few years after it had come out, but I bought it back in 2007, 2008. Oh, wow. I don't think I've bought a hard copy. Well, maybe at a concert or something. Um, I, but that's the, that's the last one I remember. I mean, I've burned CDs and stuff like that, but I, I, I guess that's like, I grew up a few years after you, and so when I was coming up through middle school, everybody was already burning CDs. Mm-hmm. Nobody was paying for music. I didn't. That really, was college for me. Yeah, I grew up in like the first generation that was like, "Oh, you you pay for music," uh, and I actually do. Like, I do buy CDs through iTunes. Thank and, you for sparing me and the pay, lecture. Pay pay for Apple Music, but uh, there, you know, I I know a lot of people who don't. You know, it was all Casa or Kaza or however you want to say it, and mm-hmm. uh, Napster and. I was in college Limewire. before we realized that Napster would be considered stealing. Yeah, and of, then, that's a big deal. Yeah, well, I mean, but that lawsuit came after my freshman year of college. Yeah, I think I was too young to, to know what a lawsuit was at the time. I just knew that I wanted the music. Yeah, and then we were like, oh, oh, yeah. So I not only do I buy music, I buy the physical copy because I don't trust technology because I am a grandma at heart. But when the Frank Ocean album does come out, we will give everybody on tri- our Triple Take audience an update and we will come in and let everyone know what we think of it because Channel Orange was great. It's a great album. So in, in a quick takeaway, y'all should go listen to that again and just wait for Boys Don't Cry to come you out. You say again just so I've you know, heard of Frank Ocean prior to preparing this conversation. Well, you should listen to it for the first time because it's a great album. There's a reason why people are waiting for him so, uh, so impatiently. I learn things through this podcast every week. That's it for this week's episode of Triple Take. 
I'm Carla Jean Whitley, and you can find me on social media at Ink Stained Life or by searching my rather distinctive name. Matt Scalisi stepped out because he's a very, very busy man who um, we're having a good time poking fun at today. And you can find him on the internet things at Matt Scalisi. And you can find me at, at John Hammontree on Twitter and at Birmingham and Tree on Instagram. And hey, we want to hear from you. What are your uh, three things that shaped your life, your favorite book, album, and movie? Uh, so tweet at us using the hashtag triple take. And again, you can find us on all social media and be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes and review us. We love those stars. I, I, I do go and admire them sometimes. As you should. All right. Thanks, guys. Talk to y'all soon.